Hello and welcome to Econa Day Unplugged. It's Tuesday, the 24th of September 2019. Mark Pender is on the US East Coast and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. So over the last couple of weeks, the main focus for investors, apart from the trade talks and Middle East instability, has of course been central bank policy. And it's probably fair to say that in general, there haven't been too many surprises. Well, that's not to say that it's all been plain sailing. Dissensions on the FOMC and ECB governing council are testimony to that. Moreover, last week we saw some interesting developments in US interest rate markets when a shortage of cash saw overnight repo rates jump to 10% and Fed funds trade well above the top of its target range. Now, this forced the Fed to inject a sizable amount of emergency liquidity to get rates back under control again, potentially significantly its first major market intervention in the repo market since the financial crisis more than a decade ago. So, Mark, we had the mm -hmm. Fed easing interest rates, at least Fed funds last week, and yet mm -hmm. we still saw repo rates going up. Is this just a technical issue or is current policy not really working? And... Yeah. Should, we, should we in fact be worried as a spiking repo rate turned out to be an early warning sign before the last big global financial crisis? Well, it's um, imbalances. It, rep it uh, represents imbalances in the money markets. Specifically here, uh, Jerome Powell offered in his uh, press conference, the I guess the traditional answer um, or the accepted answer that this was a one-time uh, crunch due to uh, mid-month uh, treasury settlements. Bond buyers who are buying treasuries have to pay for them. And also corporate uh, taxes, which were due at mid-month. Uh, so, uh, and this created a demand for cash. And uh, as far as policy goes, or, and now we're turning to fiscal policy, this could represent too many um, uh, too little, uh, too many uh, securities and too little cash uh, in the in, in the banking system. So, uh, and that is of course related to the Treasury's uh, accelerating uh, deficit and the uh, increased issuance of Treasuries. Uh, so, it it has uh, it was a one time burst. If you look at the uh, overnight collateral uh, data last week, it was an it was a one time burst. So, um, and the Fed will be. Uh, getting that money back when these repos are repurchased, so uh, or have already been repurchased, uh, repurchased. So it looks like a temporary thing, but you never know. And it really, it really underscores um, the the questions of, of of you know treasury issuance. Ultimately, uh, that's the most important thing about it, and it does point to the fact that uh, maybe quantitative easing. Uh, the Fed buying some bonds, putting cash back in the market, may be uh, the way uh, one way to uh, prevent That's this. That's what I was it, coming it, down to. Do you it, think they'd actually do it, that? It would, they it, want, would they want to start expanding the balance sheet again? Is what it really comes down to, isn't that? They can't risk having this happen again. Uh, that is for certain because it would uh, bring up questions of uh, counterparty. Uh, it still could have been a, a counterparty issue. Uh, maybe there was a uh, borrower that was in distress and was uh, uh, searching uh, for you know immediate cash, and whether or not they, uh, that party would be able to get cash, uh, uh, you know, again if that happened, or parties. This is all speculative, of course, but these would be the questions that would be raised. Um, it is it is an interesting thing, but uh, it does you know how much reserves ha uh, the Fed needs uh, in the banking system has been a question all, all year as they've been t a quantitative tightening. They've been reversing their prior 
uh, balance sheet expansion. So um, I, it's an interesting thing. What's interesting is that uh, Powell uh, sidestepped it a bit by saying that they're going to focus on this at their next meeting, the FOMC's next mm-hmm. meeting in late October. So they don't see any urgency uh, for this to happen again. Uh, corporate taxes, I mean, the next would be three months from now, the next time we, we get these uh, uh possible issues. But um, ultimately, it's really tied to the uh, treasury issuance, which in turn is tied to what you're not really supposed to do in the U.S. Actually, it's technically against the law for the Federal Reserve to support um, uh, the uh, treasury's deficit. And that's exactly what is the uh, happening uh, right now. And it's kind of always been there in the background. And certainly the independence of the Fed has been this serious question under the Trump administration. And now it's it's becoming a more serious uh, question with this uh, increased uh, treasury deficit. Interesting. This is clearly going to be something well worthwhile watching over coming weeks and months. Okay. Um, well, okay, before we leave the state side, anything else you want to put in from your side? Any developments? In fact, anything else that the Fed said, putting this repo stuff on one side? Anything else mm-hmm. out of the FOMC last week that we should be making people aware of? Well, sure. It's the dissension that you had mentioned. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the, uh, the Fed posted its quarterly uh, forecasts, uh, dot plots and stuff. If you look at these, there, uh, uh, it, it's, qu- it's quite striking. Um, there is really no right now uh, major majority. There are 17 members. Ten of them are voting. We don't know the splits when I talk about this. We don't know the splits among the voting members, excuse me. But we do know this, the splits among the uh, the 10 voting members, but we do know the splits among the 17 total members. And seven of those see uh, uh, an easing policy uh, trending, um, which I think is, of course, what the market had, has been expecting. Five are neutral and five are hawks who, who, uh, who see uh, interest rates uh, going back up. Now, this uh, uh, would be tied to consumer spending, the actual strength of the underlying economy, and the uh, recent run of inflation uh, numbers that we've been seeing uh, uh, a, a, a three straight uh, uh, elevated readings for core consumer prices, four straight uh, elevated read, readings for average hourly earnings. So it, it's the you know the need to cut rates isn't uh, isn't apparent to everyone. So <laughs> um, and uh, whether or not the, you know this is now uh, representing a political divide. In the FOMC, are these Democrats versus Republicans? But uh, you know, Powell is a Republican, and Trump put him in because he's a Republican. But it, we don't know really, of course, which way Powell is going. But he's um, apart from his own position, he is really caught between a hard place and a, you know, he's he has his he has to keep the institution of the Federal Reserve, which has its own life, its own history, its own traditions, its own momentum, and it's coming against uh, a, an administration that is uh, trying to make it political or trying to use uh, uh, to influence the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, a- ahead of an election year. So yeah, sure, yeah. Okay, interesting. I always, always think it's good when you get these split votes because, as you say, it sort of comes down to is it political? Might it signal some kind of turning point in policy or is it just the fact that nobody really knows? Plays your money, takes your choice. Um, okay, 
rest of the central bank quick roundup then in terms of well the splits we mentioned before that's certainly true of the ecb as well we talked a little about that last week as far as uk is concerned well no big surprises um over here last thursday bank of england another nine zero unanimous vote in favor of not doing anything because of course they can't because of brexit and we'll have a quick update on that in a minute otherwise uh, the swiss national bank uh, which quite a lot of people are watching closely last week in the end they decided not to do anything so they left their key policy rate at minus minus 0.75%. Um, and again, they described the currency as still highly valued. Uh, one of the key points was going to be whether or not they actually made that statement a little bit more aggressive. They did, of course, underline the fact that they're prepared, prepared to intervene as and when necessary to, to stop the currency of the Swiss franc from appreciating anymore, but for the time being, are keeping their powder dry. But certainly, if we were to see the Swissie starting to strengthen significantly again against the euro, then I think we've really got to bet that the, uh, the Swiss National Bank will be forced into cutting interest rates. Also, no change we had from the Bank of Japan, but again, in like so many other central banks these days, uh, the statement which accompanied that decision was very much along the lines, well, look, we may not be doing it at the moment, but don't surprise if we do do something a little bit further out, we don't start to see e the economy improving sooner rather than later. Okay, I'll just whiz back to Brexit since this is kind of breaking stuff at the moment then, although it's politics, but obviously it's hugely important for financial markets in general. So the Supreme Court today, which is the UK's highest court, ruled unanimously, and that's got to be said as a starting point, was a surprise to most political commentators. At Prime Minister Johnson's August call to suspend Parliament for the best part of five weeks through October the 14th was unlawful void and to no effect. In other words, what effectively what it's done is cancelled it. That is, effectively, Parliament is no longer on its summer recess or any kind of recess is still open for business. Um, it did so because it regarded that the... Um, Boris Johnson's move really was without any kind of reasonable justifications. Now, it really takes us into well, unprecedented and uncharted water in terms of what it means for Brexit and the pound, which I guess these days with all its volatility, it's more like an emerging market currency than, than a sort of international one. Um, but, you know, however you want to look at it, um, although this, this decision was prompted by the Brexit process, the ruling itself was purely and simply aimed at protecting parliamentary democracy. So it shouldn't really be seen as just a simple outright win for the, the anti-no-deal Brexit camp. Now, looking ahead, what, does it, what happens next? Well, the Speaker, the House of Commons Speaker, has decided that Parliament will be back tomorrow morning, Wednesday, uh, the 25th of September, uh, UK time. Uh, and indeed, in fact, MPs are already walking back into the chamber now. Um, as for Prime Minister Johnson, I mean, it really is, it's a huge blow and he's going to end up be fighting for his political life now. Um, what does it actually mean for Brexit? As I said, it's not really clear. It just kind of takes us back to where we were before. It's just that Parliament will be sitting to discuss what the government may or may not be putting forward between now and the 31st of August. Recall that as things currently stand under this recently passed law, uh, that was designed to stop a no-deal Brexit on the 31st. Um, and that's going to happen if no deal is agreed between the UK and the EU by the 19th of October or MPs don't vote in favor of leaving without a deal. So, so Jeremy, like so yep. for investors and for everyone, the actual date is the uh, is the 19th that that's the the date that counts 
That's right. I mean, if there's no deal agreed by the 19th of October, uh, then essentially it means that, in theory, or at least by law, we should say, it means that Prime Minister Johnson is supposed to officially request um, an extension um, of the Brexit beyond the October the 31st, the current deadline. Um, now, as we understand it currently, he's still refusing to do that, or how he's going to get around it remains to be seen. And indeed, in the light of today's Supreme Court announcement, it's not even clear that come the 19th he'll even be prime minister by then well he, also, he he said he would rather be dead in a ditch right I he mean, did. How, how do you back off from that and oh, it, I, I so, really it, so when the 19th comes around and if there's no agreement then the well, there would be a no deal brexit just by by, by default well, I mean, if, if if nothing has happened at the end of the day by the 31st of October, because ultimately that's the deadline um, under 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 EU legislation. And if they're going to if you know, if there's going to be an extension to this deadline, the EU and all members of the EU have to agree to it. So irrespective of whether or not the UK wants to ask them for an extension or not, if we get to the 31st of October and for whatever reason we haven't asked an extension or perhaps, you know, the EU decide, well, look, we've had enough of this. We don't care anymore. You're out then the UK is going to leave. Can, so can, par- can Parliament uh, uh, request an extension without Boris Johnson's um, well, uh, under- help? As I understand it, actually written into the details of the of the existing law, the prime minister himself or herself actually has to present a letter to uh, his Europe- European's counterparts um, yeah, requesting officially an extension to the Brexit timetable. Now, what has been suggested, I think we might have mentioned it before, is that uh, Johnson will sign off on um, the official request, but then he will attach his own perhaps handwritten note on the back of the paper saying, well, look, I think this is a complete and utter waste of time. I don't see any point whatsoever in asking for an extension. And then, of course, the question is, well, what do the rest of the EU do? Do they take the prime minister and say, well, look, if we got this guy's got no interest in extending it, is it worth our while going through the rigmarole of another three, six months or whatever it may be? So as ever, this lot is still very much up in the air. I have a question, Jeremy. Yeah. Has this uncertainty hurt uh, the data coming out of your? Has the European economy been suffering from uh, this indecision? I th- I think it has. I mean, to be honest, you know, it's it's really the I suppose the anecdotal evidence, the business surveys and the like, which which tend to reflect this, because you actually get some direct answers from businesses to questions about look, is Brexit uncertainly impacting you? Um, and it's worth mentioning, getting out of some economics for a change, just looking at some of the most recent figures, and particularly out today, uh, we had the flash. Sorry, yesterday I should say the flash purchasing managers surveys for September. Now we're not just sticking out too many numbers, but as far as the, the overall eurozone itself was concerned, uh, that the composite output measure, so that if you like the proxy for, for GDP, it fell from 50, almost 52 in August down to 50.4. Now, that's well below market expectations. And if we take it at face value, it suggests that economic growth in the eurozone is now running at its lowest level in the best part of 75 months. Um, and the worrying aspect of this is that not only is it the case, as we talked about on many occasions, in the past, you know, the weakness of manufacturing and the sub-index there was 45.6, so really in recession territory. But we start to see signs of it feeding through into services as well. And in particular, I think, in answer to your question on another leg, it's you know, Germany, which obviously has been struggling for a long while. Well, the index there, the headline composite output index went back below 50 at 49.1. Now, that's it's worth reading in some 83 months. And the manufacturing index, which is 40, a really miserable 
141.4. That's a 123-month low. And again, although services in Germany are still expanding, that hit a nine-month trough as well. So, and a lot of you know, get more and more of this anecdotal evidence coming out now to the effect that businesses are simply holding off on spending, investment, because they really don't know what's going to happen in this new post-Brexit world. They simply don't know, is it going to be a trade deal? Isn't going to be a trade deal? If there is a trade deal, it makes the outlook an awful lot different than if simply the EU, you know, the UK falls out of the EU come the end of October. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the answer to your question in a nutshell is yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I want to go get back to that 41.4. I mean, all the PMIs of the major economies, there's nothing like that that I have seen. Uh, you were talking, uh, the, these readings, these PMIs have been around about 10 years. So this is as low um, that I have ever seen, uh, especially something so significant like the German manufacturing sector. Um, and uh, how has that correlated this year's uh, slump in that uh, reading. How is that actually correlated with actual German uh, manufacturing output? Where right now is German manufacturing in a recession uh, officially, technically? Um, what's the latest? Uh, technically speaking, no, German manufacturing is not actually in a recession. It was earlier on and they revised some of the back data, but in terms of most recent numbers, um, where are we? In terms of July, we had a decline on the month of 0.6%. We had a decline of over 1% in July, in, uh, sorry, in June. And essentially where we stand at the moment, I suspect there's every chance that we're going to see a quarterly contraction in industrial production in Germany in the third quarter. We've already seen one in the second quarter. So probably, yeah, in a nutshell, by the end of this month, Germany will be in technical recession as far as, as far as manufacturing is concerned. Now, it's got to be said that the PMI out of Germany actually has a pretty respectable track record in calling developments in German manufacturing. Um, and again, you know, one of the key problems for Germany, of course, and we touched on this several times before, is the slowdown in world trade. Once we started to see world exports beginning to slow, Germany, and remember that you know, fifth or, or up to 50% in any quarter of German GDP is generated by exports. So if Germany is disproportionately you know, vulnerable or exposed to slowdown in global trade. And that is obviously being compounded by you know, the Brexit uncertainty, which has got all these exporters really concerned. You mentioned the auto sector. They're scared stiff at the moment about losing a big chunk of its key UK market. But Germany and Merkel seem to be um, uh, a, a kind of a neutral, not neutral actually, uh, supporting efforts by the UK to come up with a, a softer Brexit. Um, uh, is that reflecting the manufacturing uh, uh, base there? It is. I think Merkel's well aware that you know, her popularity standings have, have drifted down quite a lot. Um, we're going to see what upcoming elections just over a year or so. And she needs to do something about it. And she realises that if we do see a hard Brexit, then you know, Germany will be hit quite hard. You know, but, you know, I suppose the typical starting point is, oh, it's really bad for the UK if, if it pulls out of, a UK, out of the EU with a, you know, without a trade deal, which I personally believe to be true. But it's also true that it's going to be bad news for the European Union, which is going to lose its second largest member state. So, yes, I think Merkel is very much alert to the fact that the European Union is much stronger economically and politically and clearly this comes back to the export side with an eye on you know trade negotiations with the likes of the US and the rest of the world it's much better if you got the UK with you rather than being outside because you're that much more powerful so she's alert to all that 
Does the weakness of the German manufacturing sector point or suggest uh, an extension then of the Brexit deadline? That- well, if it's if it's just Merkel, then no. I mean, the problem for her, as powerful as she is and as powerful as Germany as a whole is, uh, the key thing about the extension is it has to be signed off by every other EU government. And there's always there's already been noises, particularly out of you know France, with Monsieur Macron, who's been intimating, well, look, you know, if they if the UK can't come up with a proper offer as to how they're going to come out with some new treaty, how they're going to deal with this thorny backstop issue, then what's the point of extending for another three or even six months? So Merkel will certainly say what she thinks, but it may even be the case that you know, the, the opposition against her is such that she, she can't get everyone to sign. I mean, that you know, re- remains to be seen. At the end of the day, everyone wants a trade deal, but I think you know, the sense is increasingly that the UK has got to really offer something which will replace this backstop, which is acceptable. Hey, Jeremy, how do you think today's Supreme Court ruling is going to play in the um, anecdotal uh, survey data? Uh, it's, you know, it's really hard to say. Looking at financial markets today, um, you just read some of the simple headlines. You've got a lot of these media saying, oh, the pound jumps on news of a Supreme Court. Well, it didn't. It dribbled up just a few, <laughs> uh, you know, a few percentage points on the back of the announcement because the initial reaction was, oh, well, that's bad news for Johnson. He's a man who runs the risk of having a no-deal Brexit. Therefore, it's good news for the pound. It, it lasted all of a few seconds and it came back down to basically where it was before the statement. And why is that? Exactly the same as the gilt market isn't changed or the stock market. It's because we're just back to square one. Nobody still knows why on the earth is what's going to happen with this Brexit. But still, I think looking away, the pound's trading at the moment. And as we as we talk, you know, this sterling euro benchmark rate, the sort of the litmus test of what investor sentiment is towards Brexit, we stand at one point one three three four. So that's euros per pound. That was pretty well where it was where we opened this morning. But it is, you know. It's, it's, it's several cents above where we were, what, go back a month or so ago when the you no-deal know, Brexit scares were perhaps at their peak. So I think there's still this kind of un- underlying sort of hope that somehow something is going to happen which gets a trade deal through, even though, what, we're not much more than a month away from a deadline now. Okay, let's move up three weeks and say that there's no progress. We're sitting there exactly where we are today, um, excuse me, in mid-October. Where's the pound going to be? I think if 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 there's no no obvious light at the end of a tunnel by then, I find it hard to believe that the power's not going to be at least one, two, three percentage points lower than it is at the moment, perhaps even lower than that. It's surely got to be the case as we get closer to this, you know, the supposed end date. That if nothing's happening, then finally markets are going to just have to throw in the towel and think, right, this is hard Brexit. That's bad news for the pound. It's going to lower the equilibrium level of UK interest rates. It will lower the equilibrium level of sterling itself. So we've got to sell. So, uh, for British residents, book your holidays now. <laughs> Not for okay. Thomas Cook, right? Oh, I wouldn't go there. That was there, a shock to me. That was a shock to me. That was a big shock to a lot of people, yes. And I say it's massive. 150,000 tourists have got to be repatriated back to the UK. Um, all right. Um, well, that wasn't a very happy note to end on. But have we got anything else we should be talking about? Mm, oh, no, I think we've probably chatted long enough for now. 
top four people nod off. So in that case, let's end it here for today. But we'll be back again as usual next week. And we'll have a look then at some of the uh, the newer economic indicators uh, are starting to gain market attention. So perhaps look at some of the details of those and just um, make people aware that it's not just the case looking at the likes of GDP and CPIs all the time. So from Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. Do keep an eye on Econoday's global economic calendar and we'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.